I'm Trudy Morgan Cole, and this is Shelf Esteem. And uh, once again, we're into our summer series with uh, my special recurring guest, Emma Cole. Hello, I've been here the whole time. <laughs> and I was not surprised when you started talking because I wasn't on my phone. <laughs> So, the premise for our summer series, which I did not think of a cute and catchy name for, mm -hmm. is that my daughter Emma and I each month recommend each other to read a book. Mm -hmm. um, and book, we, swap. book swap. Book swap. Book swap. Okay, book, book swap. swap. So, the second episode of the summer series of Shelf Esteem is now going to be called Book Swap. Book Swap. Book swap. Yeah. So, Book Swap with Trudy and Emma, <laughs> and uh, let's talk about what books we selected for each other this month. So, uh, why don't you go first? What did what did you read at my recommendation? Okay, so I read Aisha at last by uh, Uzma. Oh, the letters are so skinny. I, I think it's Uzma Jalaluddin. Jalaluddin, Uzma Jalaluddin, um, which is a kind of modern retelling of Pride and Prejudice, um, centered very heavily in the like Muslim community in I think it's in Toronto. It's in Toronto. It? Yeah, yeah, she's a Canadian, Canadian writer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and then I read at your recommendation. The Natural Daughter by Mary Robinson, which was written in 1799 and is the trials and tribulations of a uh, young woman who is misunderstood and everything goes wrong for her. It is also often called Natural Daughter with Portraits of the Leadenhead Family. Ah, okay. I think I, I'm not sure if that means that's the full title or if sometimes it was published with like extra scenes with the Leadenhead oh, family. Because the Leadenhead family are fairly minor characters. They show up, I think, like about halfway through, yeah. even, and even then we see them for a little bit, and then they're not really around. No, they're not a big is... part of the story. Yeah. So yeah, the Leadenhead family, peripheral somewhat to the story. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, and the, the edition I have that you gave me, mm -hmm. uh, from that you used in school, uh, it's it's packaged together, I guess, with her book, A Letter to the Women of England? Yes, yeah, um, which we did not read in class. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's uh, even among the, like, late 17th century romantic writing. Late 18th century, late 18th right? 79, right, yeah. right, late 18th century. It is very obscure, apparently. It, it, it was. Like, I, I, one of the things I said when you recommended this to me is that I can't believe that I have gotten through, you know, two English degrees and a long lifetime of reading pretty widely. And not only had I never read anything by Mary Robinson, I'd never heard of her, although she was quite the person. Yeah, I think we also read some more writing by her. There might have been some poems by her, but I'm not entirely sure. This was in my romantic women class. Right. So we were really digging into any romantic women in that <laughs> era, any writers, yeah. However, before we dive into either of these books, there's another book that neither of us read this month that I feel like we ought to talk it's about. It's in the, in the Venn diagram of these two books. It is the Venn it diagram. Is the, it is the center of this Venn diagram, I feel. I, I think so. And that is, of course, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Pride and Prejudice. Yes. Um, so what's your experience of Pride and Prejudice? Okay, so I, I don't remember which of these came first, but I know I watched the Lizzie Bennet Diaries yes. when it came out. It was very... Uh, it was a very important part of my formative years. Um, and I kind of like understood that Pride and Prejudice was like a cultural like touchstone. Mm -hmm. um, but I watched that and then I tried to read it. I have a memory of like bringing it to school with me in like middle school mm -hmm. and just finding it way too dense. And I also think I had a copy that was like little pocket sized. So, like it was really thick and the writing was tiny like really, print, really tiny. Yeah. yeah, tiny, tiny print. And I couldn't really get that far through it. And I felt really stupid because I didn't understand it. <laughs> but you were um, very young. Like you were maybe 12 at that time. No, that was middle school. So I would have been like 14. There's no excuse. Um, <laughs> 
Uh, but I watched the Lizzie Bennet Diaries and I love that. So I've always kind of had a grasp of the plot. Uh-huh. And the Lizzie um, Bennet Diaries, for anybody who, who wasn't around was, for them. It was like a web series in like, what, 2012, 2013? Sometime maybe? around then, the um, early 2010s. That was a retell- another modern retelling of Pride and Prejudice, a modern adaptation that was from uh, uh, Elizabeth Bennet's point of view of her doing this video diary vlog thing as her like master's thesis. Yes. And, um, and, and so the story kind of unfolded week by week as these videos were posted. Yes. And it was very good. I loved it very much. So yeah, I understood like the main story beats of it, but I'd never read the original until I went to university. And in my first year, Pride and Princess was one of the things that we read. Mm-hmm. And I remember very vividly uh, a guy who was in my class who was not an English major saying to the teacher, do I have to read the whole thing <laughs> about Pride and Prejudice? Um, but yeah, of course I loved it. I knew I was going to love it. I just hadn't like gotten around um, to reading it in a time in my life where I knew I could like sit down and understand yeah. it. And of course I loved it when I read it. Yeah. It's interesting that I never had it in school. I never had any Jane Austen in any of my um, English courses in, in, in university. And late, quite late in life, comparative to you, probably, I mean, I'd heard of it, obviously, yeah, I knew about it. Jane Austen was a thing, people were super into Jane Austen. Uh, but I was probably, well, I know I was living in this house, which means I was at least 30, mm-hmm. um, probably in my early 30s, when I checked all of Jane Austen's books out of the library and <laughs> read them all. Mm-hmm. Um, contrary to, not popular belief, but a question that people have asked me over and over, I did not name you Emma after mm-hmm. Jane Austen's I Emma. I think people have asked me that too. Yeah, yeah I think if your mother's an English teacher, it's kind of assumed. Isn't that... it you named me kind of after a character who was in reference to? Um, there, I didn't. We didn't really name you after any. We no. just liked the name Emma, okay. and it might have been partly because of Jane Austen, partly because of another literary yeah, Emma yeah, yeah. that may come up later in this series, mm-hmm. um, and then also uh, just because it was a, an old name in both our families. Yeah, mm-hmm. But uh, definitely, you know, Jane Austen's Emma was in the mix. But I, you know, I did. I liked Pride and Prejudice. I liked Emma. I liked Sense and Sensibility, and I watched the movie adaptations of all of them uh, around, probably around that same time. So I've never seen a movie adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. I haven't you? I thought we watched it one time. I thought I watched it with you about that same time. That, but you were still quite young. Maybe about the same I don't remember it. I think with with Kira Knightley. You don't remember Kira Knightley See, and Colin Firth all the wet. The thing is that I've seen so many right. like stills and clips from those movie adaptations that I genuinely don't know if I've actually seen the Kira Knightley one or if I'm just remembering it from ephemera. I feel like sometime after you watched the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, I sat down with you and was like, and now we're going to watch Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> that, that very well might have happened. Yeah. I might have just forgotten about it. Cause... Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think obviously that uh, book is kind of at the at the center of the Venn diagram of these two because Mary Robinson was not an exact but a fairly close contemporary of Jane Austen. Yeah, yeah, it was on uh, I just looked up Prime Princess was in like 1813. 13. So, yeah. Yeah. So, this is 14 years, years later, but it's definitely the same era. Oh, yeah. Um, and obviously, Mary Robinson has not had the same kind of staying power in the cultural no, imagination no. as Jane Austen for reasons that we may get into. Mm-hmm. And then the the Usman Jalaluddin book is one of like, I can't tell you how many modern day spins on. on uh, there are a lot. There are a yeah. lot, yeah. I mean, do you think it's because the plot is just so strong? Yes. That, like, what do you think are the reasons that there's been so many adaptations of Pride and Prejudice, modern and also just remakes? Well, I think to some extent, it's a thing that feeds upon itself. Yeah. It's like 
Um, I've had this conversation with uh, Michelle Butler Hallett about Shakespeare versus Christopher like, Marlowe. It's good because it's always been good. Yeah, it, it's because yes. everybody's read it so much and everybody's seen it so much that it's so much in the cultural, yeah, you know, guys. like it becomes classic because we all agree that. Exactly. Like for another um, 19th century woman, a little later than um, than Jane Austen. I think Elizabeth Gaskell's novels are every bit as good as Austen's and as mm -hmm. compelling, but they don't have that wide, wide cultural reference that like yeah. a lot I, of people who are not English majors have read them. Yeah, I think it must just be not to say that like Pride and just isn't good or anything. But like you said, there are other writers around the same time who like if you examine their works like critically, they're on the same level. They're on par with each other. It just must be some stroke of luck or the right combination of things that gets the spark going with one specific novel and one specific author. And then, yeah, like you said, it does feed itself. Yeah, it snowballs because they're like Jane Austen societies and whole genres of people. I have, yeah. I have a friend who writes Jane Austen-inspired mysteries. Yeah. And they like, they're like basically the novels, but then there's a weird turn and somebody gets murdered. And, and in hers, uh, Jane, uh, Elizabeth Bennett's sister, Mary, it solves mysteries. So I mean, you know that you like, that someone has made it as an author if, just saying their name, everyone understands exactly what genre you're talking about. Yes. Like, like their name becomes synonymous with the genre that they're writing, either because they've like forged something new or because they've had that staying power. Like if you say Jane Austen kind of novel, everyone yes. knows what you That's mean. right. Even yeah. if they can't put their name on like Regency or the era or whatever it is, yeah. like they know what it is. And I do think the thing, particularly with Pride and Prejudice, is that it is so archetypal. Yeah. It's it's the archetype of, you know, the couple who meet, dislike each other at first, overcome that initial dislike and various obstacles that are thrown in their way to finally confess their love each other, love for each other. I mean, that is the template for probably literally millions of romances. Now, I probably should know this as an English figure, but I'm thinking of how far does that trope go back? Because maybe, like, I, I know Jane Austen definitely didn't invent this, but at the time, would that have been considered a template? I don't know if it would have been to the same extent. Like, I mean, the only other thing I can kind of think of would be like Taming of the Shrew, maybe. Yes, Taming of the Shrew is definitely one that has that, but then that has that, you know, the incredibly Awful misogynistic. Where it's not like they come to an agreement. It's no, it's like her spirit is broken. Yeah, she yeah, is yeah, tamed. Yeah, yeah, uh, so the. The the began also uh, while we're on Shakespeare, what we just watched, Much Ado About Nothing. Yes. Beatrice and Benedict yes, and Much Ado About Nothing. True. Much that better than Taming of the Shrew not quite enemies, but like bickering dislike to lovers. Yes. Yeah. Is, um... so, so there definitely are some um, early, uh, you know, models of it, but I think Jane Austen, certainly in the novel form, really perfected it and perfected it too with a female writer from the female point of view, Yes, which yes. is also a template for most romances in the last 200 years since for then sure, is sure. that it's the woman's story. So with that in mind, mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to put a pause on the natural daughter okay. for a bit and we'll talk about Aisha at last first. So okay. yeah, what should I think so, about this? I have to say, I really liked it just mm -hmm. off the bat. I thought it was um, very well written. It was, I, I got through it pretty quickly. Um, what kind of threw me at the beginning or as I started to read it was that the family dynamics and like all the structures didn't match up to Pride and Prejudice exactly. Right. So yeah. when you hear like Pride and Prejudice modern adaptation, like, okay, so I'll talk about the Lizzie Bennet Diaries again. Yeah. You have, you know, Lizzie and she has her best friend Charlotte, which I think is like the same name. Mm -hmm. And instead of being, you know, society ladies or whatever, they're in grad school. Yeah. Um, she doesn't have 
four sisters. She only has two, which is more manageable for like a 21st century setting. Mm-hmm. And then the other sisters are a cousin and a cat. Yeah. Um, uh, but you have like the same things kind of play out with Wickham, is that his name? So you yes, think Lydia, yeah. but then instead of like a marriage, you have the like scandal is kind of running away and the like sex tape whole mm-hmm. thing. So it's very like a one to one, even yes, though it is. It's a very close parallel. Very close to parallels. This was not that. Right. Um, which kind of, yeah, like I said, threw me for the first few chapters because I was expecting to know the beats before they happened. And then when she like had a brother, I was like, what? How can she have a brother? <laughs> I mean, um, do you want to do like a little kind of thumbnail okay, yeah, plot okay, summary okay. of who the okay. characters are? So yeah, this? they're, I'm going to open it up. So uh, so the Mr. Darcy is uh, Khalid, Cal- yeah. Khalid probably, yeah. um, uh, who works at like a tech company. He lives with his mother. He is a very like devout Muslim. Um, and then there is Aisha, who lives across the street from him, but at the beginning of the novel they've never met. And she is like a new teacher and also a poet. Um, and she is very, I think, a good Lizzie Bennett, of yes, course. Like the yeah, whole poetry very Lizzie Bennett like. Very opinionated, very strong willed. She's very smart. She, but also, like, you know, loves her family. Is uh, She has this cousin, I think, who's younger than her, who is, I guess, the. Um, the Lydia character? The Lydia kind of That's Hafsa, right? Hafsa, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of uh, goof-em-ups with, like, arranged marriages, and Aisha uses, like, a fake name at one point. It's all, it's very, very um, uh, uh, convoluted. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it, it it did throw me a bit when there weren't those one-to-one mm-hmm. um, parallels that I was expecting, especially how um, the perspective kind of switched back and forth, and we sh- actually started with... Um, uh, Khalid's point of view, which was uh, I was not expecting. Yeah, but then, you... but then, kind of as I was reading it, I uh, the thought that I had was, as I was in my head, being like, oh well, obviously, like her sister could have been this and then this, and she didn't need to be a cousin and blah blah. blah. And I was making up how this one to one like Muslim Canadian Pride and Prejudice adaptation would play out if it was uber faithful. And then I was like, well, if I can think of that book in my head, she didn't need to write it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, if I could imagine exactly what that book would be and how it would go down. There would be no need to make that book. Um, so I'm glad that she did uh, uh, change the things that, mm-hmm. she, that she did change in the end. Mm-hmm. The thing that I can't remember, because it's about two years ago now since I read that book. And about two years that you've been asking me to read that yes, book. Yes, yeah. Well, I gave it to you when um, when you were doing Pride and Prejudice mm-hmm. in University. Yeah, yeah. Where I was like, you might like to read this. So, um, But the thing I can't remember is with her younger cousin Hafsa, is there a Lydia Wickham kind of plot? Does she get in yes. some kind of trouble? And what is it? So there's this guy whose name is Tarek. Okay, yeah, Tarek. And Tarek. And he and Hafsa kind of suddenly after, because, um, spoilers, uh, Khalid gets engaged to Hafsa. Mm-hmm. And then it's just like too wimpy to back out of it, even though he does it's not what he wants. Um, and then he breaks up with her. And then she, um, clearly very upset, runs away with Tarek, who's like this much older guy. Mm-hmm. Um and then she's like gone for a week and nobody knows where she's gone. And of course, I mean, in like any family, you'd be worried. But in this like Muslim, very tight knit community of all her family, like she, this young girl runs away with this guy. Nobody's even met before. And she's not answering her phone. Like they can't get a hold of her. She was supposed to get married to this other guy. It's a whole to do. 
Um, and uh, then I think there's like a, a slightly scandalous photo of her shows up on this like um, this weird kind of porn site. Okay. And that's where that kind of parallels with the way they did the Lizzie Bennet diaries where like uh, the Mr. Darcy character works in tech. So yes. he like has some reach in terms of like getting all that content offline mm-hmm. um, anonymously, though. But then, of course, the Elizabeth character finds out. And is mm-hmm. like, oh, he's such a great guy. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, Aisha and Khalid do end up yes, together course, at the end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has a lot of that same uh, energy of like, like Darcy, he's he's kind of got a bit of stick up his ass. Eh? Like yes, he's a, a, a bit sure. of an uptight he's character. Not, he's not misunderstood. Mm-hmm. He just is a bit like that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's not all um, misunderstandings. He does have some, some character work to do. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, which I think, which is... I think is a very important part of the whole Darcy and Lizzie kind of a dynamic. Yes. Like it's not just that he said the wrong things or just that he came across in a certain light or just that she misconstrued misconstrued him. So those things do happen, but also he is a bit of a, a tough guy <laughs> to like. He is an actually flawed character. Yeah, yeah. Put a pin in the idea of flawed characters because yes. when okay. we get to the natural yeah. daughter, I want to talk about that. But the thing I thought was interesting, and that's why I wanted to be reminded of what the Lydia Wickham parallel was in Aisha at last. Um, again, to go back to the Lizzie Bennet diaries, I love I love that adaptation. Of course, I was an adult and watching my kids watching and enjoying mm-hmm. it and 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 learning about Austin that way. But um, the thing that doesn't translate, the couple of things that don't translate in a lot of modern adaptations of Austin, is first of all the obsession with marriage. Yeah, the you know Mrs. Bennett having to get her daughters married off, and it just. It seems like a weird note in the Lizzie Bennet diaries. Yeah, it's, it's like a weird quirk of her mother's. Yes. Like her dad is always reading and talking about his bonsai trees. Her mother's always talking about marriage. Yes. Which is not as important as it is in the original. Yeah, book. and not culturally normal the yeah, way it yeah, is yeah. In, the, in the original. Um, and I think the only way that obsession with marriage really makes sense if you try to tell the story in a modern way is if you set it in a community like Aisha at last is in a very religiously or culturally traditional community yeah. where sex before marriage is not acceptable and getting people appropriately married. And even more so where arranged marriage is still. Yes. Yeah. The arranged marriage, I think definitely added another layer that was even like beyond any kind of Austinian kind yeah. of marriage thing. Um, would this also work? I would wonder in like a, a maybe very traditional or orthodox like Jewish setting because I feel like there's matchmaking in that. Oh, definitely, like, yes, too, yeah, and like a Hasidic yeah, community Hasidic, for sure. Yeah, yeah, you would get that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, any any community where there is a lot of parental involvement and investment in the idea of kids getting married. Yeah, and and uh, a, a taboo on sex before marriage, which I think yeah. is really important. And, and yeah, go ahead. And marriage seen by some people as still like an inevitability. And yes, like, I think some of them like mothers in the books are like, yeah, you can have your little career, but then you'll get married. Then you know, of course yeah. you're going to get married. Yeah, which yeah. definitely is a good parallel to the, yeah, British Austin. Kind yeah. Of yeah. So I think that was a really, uh, you know, it's, a, I mean, obviously it was Magellan just writing out of her own community and her mm-hmm. own experience. But it works so well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've just read her other novel, Hannah Khan carries on, which I also recommend by the way, which is not a, a spinoff of anything by Jane Austen, but it, um, but, 
it's a community in which and a setting in which that that Austin parallel really works. Yeah, and because the marriage is such a big part of it, like you said, it is hard to translate that to modern day communities that don't have that pressure. Yeah. yeah. And and sex not being such a taboo too. Like again, if you go back to the original Pride and Prejudice, the shocking thing with Lydia is that she runs away with Wickham and they're going to elope. Well, actually, they just run away together. Yeah, yeah. And then Darcy basically forces him to marry her to yeah, save her yeah. reputation. They weren't even going to get married in the first place. Yeah, and, and so that's what saves her reputation, is yeah. being forced into marriage. And again, when we were watching the Lizzie Bennet Diaries all those years ago, I was thinking, what are they going to do about Lydia and Wickham? Because if she just go first of all, in the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, Lydia was not 15. Like no, she is, no. she she was an older teenage, like maybe 18, 18 or 19, yeah, 18 or 19, but you know, of legal age. Had she actually been 15, then that would have been really shocking 15, in a whole yeah. different different way. And I feel like that would have been in the time it was set too heavy for the Lizzie Bennet Diaries the way it was set up. To for sure, old. yes. Yeah. But I thought, you know, if she just runs away with Wickham and has a fling with him, like there's nothing shocking about that no, for they, a young no woman in the 21st century. Them to get married in that yeah. Scenario. So what could destroy her reputation and shock everybody. And then when, when what, the, what I think in the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, what they did was brilliant to have, mm. have him release a, a sex tape without her consent, because that's the one thing that would be shocking yeah. in the modern era, not to, not to have sex, but to have evidence of it out yeah, there yeah. without your consent. Mm -hmm. So again, in this, in the context of this, the fact that Hafsa goes away with Tarek, right? Mm -hmm. That's you know, it, like you said, it would it it anybody any family would be worried about her, but in this context, much more so. Yeah, right? even more so. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, on a slightly different note, I wanted to know what you thought about towards the end. There is a scene where uh, I can't remember what he's going to do. Oh, Khalid is going in to confront his boss. I think his very like um uh racist boss essentially, uh -huh. and the whole thing throughout the novel is that he wears robes pretty much yes, he wears right. robes all the time he wears very traditional garb and he doesn't trim his beard mm -hmm. and then they have this scene where he like shows up to the office to like demand that she write some wrongs or whatever and they have him like wearing a suit and he's like trimmed his beard mm -hmm. and it's shown as like kind of a triumphant moment what mm -hmm. do you think of that in terms of what it says about devotion to faith yeah that is interesting mm -hmm. i think it's <sighs> I think it's meant to show that he's capable of compromise. Yeah. And I think one of the things with his character is that it's been uncertain as to whether he is a person who's capable of compromise, who's willing yeah. to bend in order to get along. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of undercutting in one way that devotion to faith to say that you have to be willing to take off your robes and yeah, trim your beard. And because obviously it, the, novel touches on a lot of things but it is a romance between mm -hmm. Khalid and, and Aisha yeah and I don't really think that Khalid's like traditional dress were the thing that was impacting him and Aisha getting together you know no. like that wasn't really anything that they needed to compromise mm -hmm. on so kind of showing that as like a breakthrough moment seemed a bit yeah like I said undercutting things a little bit in yeah. terms of you know you need to i don't know it kind of paints them as like your religious beliefs is something you can put on hold to make a really good point and yeah i think that does undercut the um the uh faith and the devotion that mm -hmm. i thought was a really interesting thing about khalid because a lot of people 
called him like a fundamentalist or like mm-hmm. called him a terrorist, which is no fault of his. No. So him having to change out of that to be taken seriously kind of proves them right in a way. In a way, yeah. But I think on the deal of the romance, I mean, Aisha is a very, she's a devout Muslim, but she is also a very modern woman and she expects to be able to live like a modern Canadian woman. So I wonder if there is, and again, it's been a while since I read the book, so I can't remember how much of this is text and how much is subtext, her fear that he really is a fundamentalist Mm -hmm. and he is going to dominate his wife in a way she wouldn't find acceptable. So maybe showing that he's capable of compromising and bending a little bit mm-hmm. is is a positive thing in that way because i think there is how i remember it is there's that scene where khalid is in a suit mm-hmm. and then he goes to see his boss and then later he goes to see aisha and he's like still wearing the robe but like his beard is trimmed maybe mm-hmm. so that is a little bit more of a compromise like it seems like they took it like a little bit too far to make a point yeah and then he kind of settled into a back a little yeah, bit yeah, yeah, still got the robes but the beard is trimmed yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. which which uh, I'm glad that they had that at the end because I always, I always hate when there's, and I've seen this in books before, not just specifically about religious characters, but people who have a very certain way of dressing and identifying and it's very tied to them. And the way I see it is that other people are misconstruing them and they're very true to who they are. And that's lovely. But then the character development that they get is not dressing like that anymore. It's basically giving in to what everyone else thinks they should be doing. And I always hate that trope in writing. So- Spoken like somebody who was a stagehand in a performance of Grease. <laughs> <laughs> Don't call me out like that. Don't do that to me. But it's true, though. Grease is horrific. And yeah. I mean, it's great. great song. <laughs> and uh, Grease is horrific. By the way, Grease is awful. Great songs, though. But that is, that is the ultimate example of that, right? Yeah. She changes her entire look. She apparently abandons her morals. And, and it's know. like, what does that say? It says that she was wrong, yeah. which is like a bonkers thing to say and it is, do. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I've seen, like, there was one YA book that I read way, way back where there's this character who was like in high school and she was so hardcore goth. Not comparing goth subculture to the Muslim religion, no, but no. in terms of plot her identity, in yeah. terms of plot functions, they're very similar. And she was like hardcore goth, like the scary white black makeup, the hair teased, and everyone was like, "Oh, you look really hard to approach," and like nobody, you're very off putting. And I was like, "No, she's living her life. She can be a good friend and be a good person and dress super." trad goth go her and then like the plot development was like at the end of the novel she toned back and started dressing like very hippie yeah. and everyone liked her then and i was like no, no she's not even so cool no. she just kept doing that and then everyone liked her that would have been so much better yeah so yeah i'm glad they did have that scene or like they uh, she made a point to say that Khalid, you know is kind of compromising a bit but it's not like he threw away all his robes yeah right? yeah like, i know and i love that this is a story about people within a fairly traditional religious community that, you know, doesn't uh, ignore the issues with, with that community, but also kind of celebrates it. And, and yeah. you know, these people are true to their identity, which I think is cool. I mean, obviously I come to this, you know, as someone having grown up and, and lived my life as a Seventh-day Adventist, which is not as visually obvious as being a, a, mm-hmm. a hijabi Muslim or whatever, but has a lot of that same morals and sense of being kind of set apart from the world yeah yeah very like although it's yeah not as optical there are certain 
things that are not in the mainstream that yeah. you do to profess your faith. And yeah. the and the tradition, very traditional attitudes towards sex too, which yeah. like I know there's a lot of messed up stuff about purity culture within evangelical Christianity. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a lot of messed up stuff about hookup culture in main, yes, in mainstream sure. yeah. culture as well, which made me think about last month's book selection and uh, Connell and Marianne in Normal People. Yeah. It's, it's like we're just going to have sex together. And not communicate and, because that's normal. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think that is every bit as messed up as, as purity culture and, you know, yeah, so. just as damaging, but in different, in ways. different yeah. ways. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. And, you know, I loved Aisha at last. I thought it was a really good spin on yeah, Pride and Prejudice and I'm glad you liked it. Mm-hmm. And now shall we talk about whatever the natural daughter is? <laughs> what the natural daughter is, is it's bonkers. I, I prepared you. I said, listen, this is the book I want you to read. It's wild. It is. You fuck wild. You're going to get, Five chapters in and think, it's not going to get weirder than this. And every chapter, you're like, it's not going to get weirder than this. And it does get weirder. It gets, it weirder. gets weirder. Okay, so uh, again, not quite an exact, but near contemporary of Jane Austen. Uh, the written in 1799, the year the author died. So mm-hmm. it's like the last thing she did. Mary Robinson's own life more bonkers than her character. Yeah. We'll come to that as well. But this is uh, Martha who is a sort of middle-ish class young woman. Her, mm-hmm. you know, they're, She's they're the not... eldest daughter of two. The eldest daughter of two. Her, her younger sister is Julia, who is a piece of work. <laughs> yeah. uh, but as the story begins, they're both young women, I guess of marriageable age. Yeah. Uh, Julia is the favored daughter because she is sweet and mild-mannered and biddable. And... Like, the, she is the stereotypical feminine woman to the extreme. Yes. Like, a change in the wind and she will fit. Yeah. Kind of. And Martha is the parents are not quite sure about Martha because she is outspoken and strong-willed and kind of Lizzie Bennet. Yeah, so they are. Yeah, yeah. yeah she's a little bit less Lizzie Bennet-ish. Um, but then, yeah, things get weird. Mm. Uh, Martha gets married to a guy called Mr. Morley, and then he goes away for a little while, and she stumbles across a woman and a baby. The amount of times in this novel that the plot is propelled by Martha taking a walk and finding somebody <laughs> is startling. And she finds the same people over and over. That's the other thing is that because say, there are 15 people in Britain, apparently. It really seems like it because Martha keeps running into the same people in the most unlikely circumstances. Mm-hmm. So she meets this young woman who has an obviously illegitimate baby. The woman won't explain who she is or where the baby comes from, but somehow she ends up taking off and leaving Martha with the baby. And then everybody assumes that Martha has had an affair and had an illegitimate child. Martha thinks that the woman has died because she was very ill. So it's assumed that the woman has died. And yeah, then then her husband comes back from vacation and Martha just has a baby. (laughs) And she doesn't adequately explain the the existence of the baby. Well, here's kind of, we were talking a little bit about flawed characters and Martha is kind of like, uh, you know how the idea is like, you know, your hero should be a character that has like a fatal flaw that's very mm-hmm. relatable, but they have like one fatal flaw that is their downfall in the specific events mm-hmm. that they live through. Martha seems to be that she's very, like, she's great in all other aspects. She's yes. perfect. Except she will not explain where this baby came from. And I guess devotion to the mother or something? I guess, but if she thinks... 
the mother is dead. Why does that matter? Like she doesn't just say to her husband, I went to such and such a house and I found this. Of course, also the old woman who was in the yeah, house so doesn't no back her up. Nobody backs her up. Yeah. She has no witnesses to corroborate the story. Everybody suspects her. Her sister shows up and suspects her and says, oh yeah, Martha's definitely gone and cheated on you. The husband was away for some time, yeah, like yeah, months yeah, and months. Yeah. He was on the continent, which turns out to be important later mm -hmm. um so yeah she she has this baby which she actually spends almost no time with her taking care of the baby largely seems to be finding someone richer and better yes. off to take care of the baby yeah. but, but she forms a very strong attachment to she does yeah. um so martha who, the baby's named fanny martha's husband throws her out mm -hmm. she goes to london multiple events ensue multiple events and Not she she ends up as a lady's companion yep. Then she ends up as an actress, mm -hmm. and then when an actress with oh, that's right, the, the mother of the baby, the mother yes. of the baby was not dead. She's just an actress now, and, and, and then they have this lovely adventure together, being and like, they become great friends become and great like great touring the country, yeah, touring the country, yeah. starring actresses, mm -hmm. and then um, another scandal involving her sister, who has got her own whole side plot. Every character in this book feels like they are a main character of a different book. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think Mary Robinson has any idea of what the function of a secondary character is. No. She's like, all these people are going through their own Buckwild events, and they happen to intersect. They all happen That's to intersect, That's what she yeah. thinks secondary characters everybody are. Has, everybody has a massive drama going on. Yeah. So Martha loses her job as an actress, is penniless and destitute, and forced to turn to the most devastating means of all of making money, writing a novel. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it's not prostitution. It's not sex work that she falls into. It's novel writing. Yeah, uh, but she can't make a whole lot of money at it. She does no. it for for a bit, it's and then novel she, writing. And she tries to be a poet for a yes, while. Yes, and then she time. tries to find a wealthy patroness by addressing her poems mm -hmm. to some wealthy lady. Yeah. And multiple times she runs across in different settings the baby Fanny. Mm -hmm. Fanny's mother, Mrs. Sedgley, her fellow actress, mm -hmm. and a guy called Lord Francis Sherville, who lived nearby her and Mr. Morley, in the, in the way that you can yes. be neighbors in. And, and Lord Francis uh, at, sort of takes over financial responsibility for this baby, Fanny, just out of yes. kindness. Martha becomes convinced, and the writer works very hard to convince the reader that Lord Francis is actually the father yes. of the baby. Because also, Mr. Morley is very convinced of this. Yes. Especially yeah. when he sees the way Lord Sherville helps Martha after he throws her out. He's like, oh, well, clearly they've been having an affair the whole time. Yes, and Martha is convinced when... when Fanny's mother tells the whole story about how she got in a secret marriage in France. Yes. Oh, this is all happening during the French Revolution, by the way. Which comes in later. You comes don't think in, it's in the weirdest possible way. Um, <laughs> also, this is somewhat for the benefit of the podcast, and just we're both trying to work through this plot. Yes, yeah. Trying to make sense out of this bonkers yeah. plot. Um, and then yeah. there's also Lady Penn Pryor oh, and yeah. her... Friend whose name I can't remember, something with an eight. Li oh, it's Lionel. Oh, Lionel. Sir, Lionel. Sir Lionel or Lord Lionel. Lionel Beacon. Lionel Beacon. Lionel Beacon. Okay. That's it. They, no H's whatsoever. No Lionel H's. Beacon, by the way. They also uh, pop up. Yes, as does the Leadenhead family. Yes, the Leadenhead family. Julia briefly marries into the Leadenhead family, has an illegitimate child, and disappears sure, again. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then, yeah, the, the author tries very hard to convince us that Sir Francis is the father of baby Fanny, but he is not. No. It turns out, which I had figured out before the end, he is actually the the 
the baby's mother is his sister. He's the yes. uncle of the baby. Yes. And the great shame was his sister getting pregnant out mm -hmm. of wedlock. And eventually this is all revealed in the most dramatic confrontation. Um, like a mountaintop in Switzerland? A mountaintop in Switzerland. After they briefly... How did they get there? I don't remember. I don't, but they were in prison in France yeah. because Martha's... Butterwood melt her mouth sister Julia ends up as the mistress of Robespierre. <laughs> my cameo from Robespierre. And the, the Deus Ex Machina that gets them out of prison is Robespierre getting executed. And then I guess we're like, okay, you're free to go. Oh, and Julia gets murdered. Oh, yeah. Julia's yeah, brutally yeah. murdered. Very and then Mr. Morley um, basically falls off a mountaintop after revealing that he is, in fact, the father of baby yes, Fanny. So he was the one all like, along. Okay, there's a lot to unpack. There's a lot to unpack so here. When Mr. Morley was accusing was accusing Martha so heavily of infidelity, yeah. did he know that the baby he was accusing her of having illegitimately was his own baby, a product of his infidelity? I don't know. It was not clear whether he knew it was the same baby all along or that only becomes but, clearly, but, but he way, knows he is. Either way, it's horrible of him to throw her out on her ass after accusing her of the exact same thing that he's literally just got back home from doing. And not only that, he does it twice. Yeah. Because he also gets her sister pregnant with the baby, right. with the baby that, that Julia I later has. I forgot That's worse. He is, he and Julia killed that baby. What? There's infanticide. Where do they kill the baby? I don't know how they do it, but they, there's it's it's explained in this because the baby dies off stage, and then mm. it's explained that he and Julia had brought about the death of the. I don't know if they outright Jeez. killed it or just like neglected, neglected it, it to death. Yeah. Jeez, that's rough. So um, he, yeah, he has committed adultery at least twice, infanticide, accused his wife of adultery which she did not commit, threw her. Out. Oh, also, I think he's a minister. He is a minister, yes. Of course. So there's a whole thing here about the the uh, hypocrisy of religious yeah, men, this obviously. Is, <laughs> it's just pride and prejudice if Lizzie had married whoever Mr. the... Collins. Mr. Collins. And Mr. Collins was a monster. And also if Jane Austen had not been very good at writing novels, because I think that's, that's another whole point is here. so dense. This not like... There, we left out stuff. Oh, we did. We did. We just, this was us hitting the highlights the of the highlights. plot of this book. But, you know, when you go back to that thing of why is Jane Austen still being read and people are doing spinoffs of her work and making movies of it 200 years later, and that's not happening with Mary Robinson, who was obviously, you know, a early feminist and had really interesting ideas. But it's just not a good book as a novel. Like, okay, I think if it had a little more work, it could be good. I Possibly. Really, I really like this book. Do you? But I, I, I enjoyed it. reading it. It was okay, a fun that's experience. True. I, do, I did enjoy reading it, but it is just batshit insane. It really is. Yeah, and I mean, I think there's something to be said, because obviously Mary, Rob Mary Robinson, like we said, was a feminist, a feminist writer. It's kind of wild the way she kind of paints... Martha and Julia as like the reasonable woman and the like overly sensible emotional woman, right? Which, o overly sensitive. To get back to Jane Austen reminded me of Sense and Sensibility and the two sisters in that, but like if you dialed it up to ten yeah, thousand, yeah. the extreme. So like Martha is like so reasonable, so loyal, and 
I guess you could say everything works out for her in the end. It kind of does. Um, but she... Is she also, gets the guy, which is Lord Francis. She yeah. gets the baby, and mm-hmm. she gets her name cleared. And it also kind of explores, like, basically all the options you had as a woman. Yeah. Like, you could get married, and then if you were divorced, you basically had four things you could do. Yeah. And Martha, except for sex work, does all of them. Right? Yeah, and, and Martha is given numerous opportunities in a, you know, couched in a very polite way to do respectable sex work. She has several opportunities to become someone's mistress. Yes, which she says no to. She says no to. And the interesting thing to me is that there is this very, you know, um, English prudishness about, you know, Martha, the heroine, can never be permitted to be sullied by becoming anyone's mistress. But Mary Robinson herself was the mistress of the Prince of Wales, which yeah. is almost as random as Julia becoming Robespierre's mistress. It's... And then she went on to become someone else's mistress after that. Yeah, I mean, the way I saw it was like, yeah, Julia is this overly, it's like, from Mayor Robinson's point of view, the way I infer it, even though we shouldn't always pretend we know what the others are thinking, but... Julia represents kind of what women have been in society. You know, they go around fainting and smiling and they can be very emotional, but they don't really have a lot of knowledge or a lot of education or anything, but they get through just by coasting on their looks and yes, whatever, yeah. um, but without a lot of substance. Whereas Martha is like the ideal feminist who's like, she's not going to sell out where this baby came from. She's very loyal. She's very honest, except for where the baby came yeah. from. Um, but yeah, she won't be anyone's mistress. She tries all kinds of honest work. Um, and she's pretty like smart and has a good head on her shoulders and it goes through a lot of shit, but then is eventually okay. I Mm -hmm. think it's eventually vindicated. Yeah. Yeah. The thing to me, and I, I, I keep looking at the book because I put a little marker in it to mark a passage. And now I can't remember what it was on this page <laughs> that I wanted to mark. The writing is really over the top in a yeah. lot of places, but also very funny yes. sometimes. Very funny. Very yeah. funny. Um, and very satirical. It's good satire. Like yeah. She is satirizing. Especially the Leadenhead family. Oh, yes. It's very yeah. satirical. Very over the top. Like, honestly, I think this would, with maybe a little bit of editing, but also if you played into the ridiculous of it, make a really good miniseries. Because yes. think of like each episode, like where she's like uh, her with her family, and then the whole thing where she gets married, and then it literally goes to her being like an actor, her being a writer. Like, it- <laughs> and don't forget the whole subplot where she gets mistaken for somebody else, kidnapped, and put in an insane asylum. This is true. It goes off the rails a little bit. Very, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, and then she yeah. reunites with her mother. Yes, and then her mother dies. Presumed dead, and then her mother dies, yeah. and then Lord Francis rec- pops out of nowhere and yeah. saves her. Yeah, it's a lot, but. The thing to me that that I think keeps it from having the kind of universality and staying power that something like Pride and Prejudice does is that there's no subtlety to the characterization. Yeah, it yeah. is. Everyone is over the top. Everyone is almost cartoonishly extreme, except for Martha. Lady Louisa, who is the Mrs. That she's another sister of Lord Francis mm-hmm. and Lord Francis himself. Everybody is terrible. Yes, and everyone, like I said, has so much going on Mm -hmm. at any moment. There's a lot of exposition where people sit down and tell you everything that's happened, Mm -hmm. which I think does happen in Jane Austen, too, quite a bit. There is, Yeah, but there is, in Jane Austen, there is, like you were saying about uh, Khalid in in Aisha and Last, being like Darcy, in that there is 
there's genuine complexity to yeah, his there, character. There are genuine layers to uncover. Yes, and 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 characters can change and grow. <laughs> I don't think anybody in this novel ever changes no. and grows. All that happens is that things are revealed. But the good people are purely good from, from the beginning. beginning. Yeah, and, and the bad people are purely bad. And there's no like he's a good guy, but he's got terrible people skills that he needs to work on, yeah. like with Darcy. Yeah, or there's no, like, I thought I was a good person, but actually I had a whole much more, like, a lot more to learn. No, yes, Martha's yeah. just right from the beginning. She's perfect she from the beginning. Right. And, and it's yeah. the world that does awful things. Which is a very good statement on how, no matter how smart and honest and good you are, if you live in a patriarchal society that oppresses your gender, you are always going to be in this cycle of oppression and there's very few ways to escape it, even if you always try to do the honorable thing and, you know, become an actress and then you get, I don't know, called out for doing that, so you become a writer. Like, there's limiting opportunities and there's limited options that you can take, whereas men, such as Lord Beacon, can gallivant around the place and always have things come up in their favor, right? Yes, yeah. 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 So I think it's a very good... Very good, if not over-the-top commentary on how patriarchal systems are perpetuated and are felt by people. But still, Martha is a, like a middle-class woman who turns out, like, is still, even at her lowest, has a roof over her head. You yes, know? exactly, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, even when she's poor, she still somehow manages to pay for, like, food and lodging. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, as a satire of a lot of the things going on in contemporary society and as a kind of polemic of like, here are the points I want to make about woman's lot in this mm -hmm. society. It works very well. But on the psychological level of the characters, yeah. the characters are both too much and not enough. Yes. Yeah. Like, and, yeah. and and the, the coincidences that drive the plot are just like, it's, it's so over bizarre. the top. The level of coincidence. Like there, yeah. There's a small cast of characters to the point where if you introduce anyone new, it feels weird. Yeah. What? They met someone who we haven't already met? This person hasn't been around before? Um, so, yeah. And it, this, again, a bit of a callback to the last book we read, mm -hmm. uh, to the last two books we read on the podcast. Um, I mean, this is a very different book from My Year of Rest and Relaxation. Yeah. But you may remember my main complaint about that was virtually everyone was a horrible person. Yeah. And in this book, Virtually everyone except Martha and a few select others are horrible people. And I feel like in both cases, there's so much going on. Again, you know, we're talking about authors who are 200 years apart and very different, but they are writing about what it is to be a woman and a young woman in their society. Mm -hmm. And they are satirizing a lot about that society. And in both cases, I think realistic characterization is sacrificed on the altar of the point they want to make. Do you need realistic characterization in a satire, though? Maybe you don't in a satire. Maybe not. I mean, there's a lot of satire that doesn't have, and, and farce, obviously, yeah, yeah. and it doesn't have, doesn't have realistic characterization. But I think for a book to really draw people in and have lasting effect. At least I, as a reader, want the characters to be believably complex, a believably complex mix of good and good and evil, flawed, and yet there's something we can we can like or we can love about them. Mm -hmm. so, and and that was where this one fell down for me. And yet, what a wild ride. What a book. What, what a, a book. book. What a book I, it was. I mean, I think when she... Maybe, maybe this is known how long it took her to write this when she says that Martha sat down and wrote a book in like six weeks. Oh, yes. Yeah. Martha sits down in six weeks and writes a novel, which I feel like was maybe, yeah, speaking from the heart a little bit. <laughs> and also then 
it also leaves a plot where she gets it published and then later finds out it's become a bestseller, but she doesn't have the rights to it. Oh, yes. Now, that part I felt very deeply. Did <laughs> you also feel deeply for... Um, it reminded me a lot of Aisha when she was uh, teaching in school. You talking about your first few experiences as a like a teacher. Oh when yeah, because like she goes to like this middle school where nobody's listening to her. Yes, and like yeah. throwing things at the board. Yes, yeah. yeah. I forgot there was a whole teacher plot in there. Yeah, as well. she is a teacher. Again, yeah. so much happens that it's hard to keep track of. Yeah. But again, all of that is from Mary Robinson's life, right? She yeah. was a teacher when she was like fourteen. Yeah. She was an actress. She was a writer. Unlike Martha, she was willing to become a rich man's mistress yeah. oh she's also like a, a governess at one point in oh, the that's book. right, right? Yes. she's a governess for one or she's either a governess or a teacher at a school and then one of the little leaden head shithead right kids, the little leaden heads the little shithead leaden heads <laughs> right. says that's mrs blah 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 she had an illegitimate baby or something and then she, she gets, gets a job. the leaden heads by the way we haven't said but they are this family of terrible social climbers yes. people who's only sort of uh, low-level gentry whose only goal is to marry and have their children marry well so yeah. they can ascend into the ranks of the nobility. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the idea of Martha being a good and honest woman who takes someone's baby like out of pure kindness and then is just beat down time after time, followed by this ruined reputation that's not even true, mm -hmm. is a very sad and very compelling story. Absolutely. But also, everything else that happens is batshit insane. Yes. And it, but, it, yeah, like you said, it feels like this was Mary Robinson's life edited down already. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for introducing me to The Natural Daughter. I'm just glad somebody else has read it. Did you, when you did this in class, did people think it was bonkers? Um, my teacher said that he'd had people before say that it, like, this isn't a good book. Uh -huh. And I kind of disagreed with that. I was I think it's a good book. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think there were a lot of varying opinions on it. I really liked it, but I think I might have been in the minority. I enjoyed the experience of reading it. But I, I think as, I mean, the other thing is that novel writing as such by 1799 people were still working the bugs like, out of the whole idea of writing a novel was spelling even standardized <laughs> no, not very how could you expect them to keep plot structure but like, it was really only in the in that century in the 18th century that the novel developed in english yeah. as a form so there's a lot of hammering out so a lot of those early no novels no yeah rules. and a lot of those early novels don't have the kind of psychological realism and and believable plot that we later come to expect. Mm -hmm. And to go back again to Jane Austen, I think one of the reasons that Austen is still so central and so revered is that she was one of the first novelists who really did that. Yeah, to understand that like less is more and believable is can be dramatic. Yes, yeah. yeah. And that that it's not just one exciting incident after another. It's not just multiple events occur. And that characters can be complex and flawed and and more like real people than like uh representations of concepts or ideas, mm -hmm. which is what I think really a lot of the characters in the natural daughter are. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been good. Mm -hmm. And we will be back. We don't know yet what books we're going to read next month, but we will be back with more books next month and another episode of what we're going to come. Book swap. Book swap. Book swap. Book swap. And uh, until then, folks, oh, I will say, I will do um, what I have done in the past when I've had guests and we talk about a lot of books because we did talk about more than just The Natural Daughter and Aisha last year. We touched on other books and other media. So uh, if you go to my website, trinimorgancole.com, 
uh, and click on the shelf esteem link. You will find a blog post listing everything we talked about in this episode. And we will be back next month. And until then, read a good book and build your shelf esteem.